When we hear the word freedom, we usually think about having the ability to do whatever we want to do or whatever we think is best. However, God frees us from our sin and from the law's condemnation so that we might live in a relationship with Him and walk in obedience to His word, even when it's difficult. In this message from Galatians chapter 4, verses 8-31, through 31, David Platt highlights the freedom the gospel brings in terms of our relationship with God. We no longer live for fading earthly pleasures because we've been freed to live in light of our new heavenly home. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Free to Grow. Si tienes tu Biblia, yo espero que si. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. And pull out those notes that you have from the worship guide you received when you came in. This text that we are going to study uh, this morning together in God's Word is a fitting conclusion to the end of this year. I was thinking back this week over our year together in the Word, and it's been a challenging year on a variety of different levels. We, we've been from sin in the camp to looking at the gospel, core truths of the gospel, and really asking what kind of gospel have we believed? We believed a biblical gospel. What does it really mean to be saved? And we've seen how that gospel affects our marriages and our families and parenting and affects the way we approach issues like divorce or homosexuality. We've seen how the gospel affects the way we walk through suffering. And if that wasn't heavy enough, then we looked at how the gospel confronts us in our materialism and comfortability in this world and then looked at what happens to a billion plus people in the world today who have still not heard the gospel. It's been a heavy year and a lot of challenging truths that we have seen. And so it's fitting that we would come to Galatians 4, which to be honest, the passage we're going to look at today is a pretty complicated text and uh, much like some of the other text we've looked at in Galatians, but that's not the reason I think it's a a fitting conclusion. Why I think this text in particular is a fitting conclusion is because we're going to see in the verses we're about to read a glimpse that we don't get like this in many other places in the New Testament into the heart of Paul as a pastor. And we're going to see some affection from him for this church, these churches in Galatia, that, well, in Luther's words said, just breathes Paul's tears all over these verses. We're going to see his longing for them as a people, which is important because for three chapters, we've seen Paul really lay into these folks in a variety of different ways. He's called them foolish on a couple of different occasions. He doesn't start this letter the way he starts most of his letters with some commendation and compliments, basically. Instead, he just dives right in and says, what are you doing? And he he really addresses them confrontationally, which Paul's showing us that there's a time when the church needs to be confronted in that way, when the church needs to be called out on areas that are not in line with the gospel, areas where the Word of God is not being lived out in the church. But then what we have here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 through 31, is Paul stepping back in a sense, not stepping back from the truths. We're going to see he's reiterating the same truths he's been talking about, but when his tone really addressing them with with a heart of affection and desire for them to see the truths that he has been putting before them. And I think it's fitting because we have walked through some heavy 
sometimes difficult truths over the last year. I, I hope, I pray in a way that has been faithful to the biblical text. I hope and I pray that I have been faithful to the biblical text in bringing those truths to us, even hard truths to us. At the same time, this text gives me an opportunity just to step back in a sense, not from those truths, but to step back and just to say to you as a faith family that God has entrusted to me to pastor, to have the opportunity to say to you how thankful I am to have that opportunity, how thankful I am for you as a people, how thankful I am to be your pastor, how I love you and pray for you and long for you, long for your growth in Christ. And this text gives me an opportunity to do that. So what I want us to do is I want us to read Galatians 4, 8 through 31. And I'll go ahead and warn you, it's, it's a complicated text. There's some things that you're going to read it. You're going to think, all right, what is that talking about? So by God's grace and the leadership of his spirit, we're going to hopefully unpack those things. And what I want to show you is three prayers that as I was studying this text this week, three prayers that came to the surface from the text that I want us to pray as a faith family. As we come to the end of 2008, begin to go into the 2009 year, I want us to pray these prayers based on these texts. So let's read Galatians 4, 8 to 31, then we're going to dive into those three prayers. Verse 8, Paul writes this. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. 
It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Father, we need your Spirit to help us to understand this Word. We need your Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to see how this Word that you spoke a couple of thousand years ago to these churches affects the way we live our lives in this church today. God, we pray that you would show the eternal life-changing truths that are found here to our eyes and our minds and our hearts in this room. You would do it by your Spirit. And you would do it in a way that changes our lives, some for the first time for all of eternity this morning. And, And for your church today, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ. We pray that you would Do this work by your grace in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you just, and you might even circle it, three different places in the verses we just read where where Paul, we see this affection from Paul. He mentions, calls them brothers three different times. Look in verse 12. It says, I plead with you brothers. And you might circle it there. And then you get down to verse 28. It says the same thing. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Then you get down to verse 31, last verse. He says, therefore brothers. You might circle it there. And you might also circle verse 19. He doesn't say brothers, but he says, my dear children. What I want to point out there is the fact that this this is folks who just one chapter earlier, Paul started by saying, you're foolish, Foolish Galatians, foolish Galatians. And now he's speaking to them, brothers, brothers, my dear children. And you see this affectionate tone from Paul. Now based on what he's saying there, I, I want to put these three prayers before us from this text for us to pray as a faith family as we close out this year and go into the next year. First prayer is this. God, show us how to walk in your grace. God, show us how to walk in your grace. Now, in many senses, what we've got here in Galatians 4, 8 through 31 is really not new material. It's not new information that Paul is bringing to the table that he hasn't brought to the table to this point. In fact, chapters 3 and 4 build on chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 3 and 4 are kind of of a group together. And Paul really is putting a period on what he's already been developing that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And so there's not a lot of new information here. In fact, when he starts there in verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. That's what we've been talking about for two or three weeks now. How Paul, at the end of chapter 3, talks about how we are slaves, imprisoned by the law, slaves to the law. And you get to chapter 4, what we talked about last week is how God takes us from slavery to sonship. We're adopted as his sons. And so the, the picture is, you were slaves. That's what Paul has said over and over and over again. And when you get to the end of this chapter, verses 21 to 31, he brings in an illustration from the Old Testament, an analogy. It's about Hagar and Sarah. We don't have time to, to turn there, but you might write this down. Genesis 16 and 17 is what he's referring to. And what happened back in Genesis chapter 16 is you had Abraham and Sarah together. The only problem was they were not, being, they were not very successful in having children. And as a result, they began to worry that God was not going to carry on their line. And so Sarah goes to Abraham and said, listen, I'm not going to be able to give you children apparently. So take Hagar, who's a servant in Abraham's household, and you have a child with Hagar. It's one of those not so pretty parts of the Old Testament where you've got Abraham and Hagar together and they have a child. That child's name is Ishmael. 
So what you've got is a, a slave woman, is what Paul refers to her as, Hagar, and a slave child, Ishmael, in that picture in Genesis 16. And so Abraham is thinking, okay, God's going to bless my line through this child, through Ishmael. But then you get to Genesis 17, and God says, no, I'm going to give you a child with Sarah, child of promise, and that's going to be Isaac that's going to come on the scene. Trust me. Yes, I know you're 100 years old, and Sarah is not far behind you, but you're going to have a child. Contrary to everything that you would imagine, you're going to have a child that's going to carry on this line. That's a promise that God gives and a promise that God comes through on later on in Genesis. So Paul takes that picture as an illustration and says, okay, what you've got is a, a slave woman and a free woman, Hagar and Sarah. You've got a child of slavery in Ishmael and a child of freedom from a promise in Isaac. And he said, these are two pictures of two covenants. You've got old covenant where we are slaves to the law, and you've got new covenant where we're children of promise, slavery to sonship, from law to promise. And it's all that we've talked about in Galatians 3 and 4 up to this point, now encapsulated. Now what I want to do is I want us to almost in a sense recap what we've already seen and see how Paul's bringing this to light through three different lenses, where, how we got here, who we are, and where we're going. How we got here, first of all. What Paul is doing in bringing this picture of slavery and the Old Testament law back into the forefront is he's reminding the churches in Galatia and the Christians there, we have not been obedient to the law. We've not been obedient to the law. We're not saved because we're obedient to the law. Now remember, there were Judaizers in Galatia that were saying, you want to be saved? You want to be right before God? Do these things. And Paul's saying over and over again, no, 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 no. That's not how we're saved. We're not made right before God because we do good things, because we check off the right boxes, because we're obedient to the law. The law enslaves us. The law reveals our need for God's grace through faith. The law puts us in prison, so to speak, Paul says at the end of Galatians 3. We've not been obedient to the law. That's not how we're saved. So how are we saved then? Well, we've been awakened by the Spirit. And this is, this is the key phrase in this illustration at the very end of the chapter. Look at verse 29 when Paul is talking about Ishmael and Isaac. And he says, at that time the son born in the ordinary way, which is Ishmael, born in the ordinary way, meaning just like you would imagine, okay, something's going on with Sarah. She's not able to have children. So, all right, Abraham and Hagar, you all have a child together. This is where what would be most natural for you all to do since apparently this isn't happening over here. And so that son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Now, that's referring to Isaac. This is natural over here, what happened with Ishmael. What happened with Isaac was supernatural in the sense that there was no other explanation for how Sarah and Abraham, at their age, could have a child. This was a promise from God, Isaac born by the power of the Spirit. Now, Paul's using this as an illustration. You go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3. It's the same thing he said there when he said, Are we, do we receive the Spirit by observing the law or by faith? We have the Spirit. The Spirit of God has done something supernatural in our lives. Now, follow with me. Don't get lost here. It's going to come back around. How did we get here? We have not been obedient to the law. Instead, we've been awakened by the Spirit. Now, that has huge ramifications for who we are now. Because we've been awakened by the Spirit, who we are now is we are not slaves to religion. 
We've not been obedient to the law. We've been awakened by the Spirit. And because we've been awakened by the Spirit, we're not slave to religion. This is what Paul is saying over and over and over again here in Galatians 3 and 4. You're not slaves anymore. You're not slaves anymore. You're free. He says at the end of Galatians 4 there, he says, get rid of the slave woman and her son. You are free. Children of freedom, not slaves to the law. Stop living like you're slaves to the, slaves to the law. You're free. And I want you to see what Paul does in Galatians 4, 8 through 10 to describe this. Now, you've got to follow here. And I promise, if you hang with me through these verses, 8, 9, and 10, you're going to see this text just come to life. Look at verse 8. Look at what Paul says. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, verse by verse, let's go through this progression. Verse 8. Paul says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Now remember, these Christians in Galatia, before they came to Christ, were they Jews or Gentiles for the most part? Or Gentiles. These were not Jewish people. They were Gentiles who heard the gospel. So what they were, were they were Gentiles following pagan religions. They weren't following Jewish rules or Jewish customs, Jewish law. They were following pagan religions, pagan idolatry. And Paul says, you were freed from that. You were freed from your pagan religion and pagan idolatry into Christ. You're set free. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. What he's talked about. You're set free. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, you were slaves to foreign gods. Or you could even put demons in there based on the kind of the picture that Paul's painting here through the principles of this world. The picture is you were worshiping false gods, participating in false religion. You were slaves to that and you were set free. And then, so that's what he says in verse 8. Verse 9, he says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? So he says, now you're going back into what you came out of. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Look in verse 10. What are they doing? He says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. What were they doing? Had they gone back to their pagan religion and pagan idolatry they had been involved in before? No, they hadn't. Instead, what they were doing was they were observing Jewish holy days like the Sabbath and festivals and years like the year of Jubilee and celebrations. They were doing these things, these Jewish customs and rules the Old Testament talked about that were prescribed there. That's what they were doing. Now, here's what is just astonishing in this passage. Do you realize what Paul has just done? He has just equated they're following Old Testament rules and customs with the pagan religions that they've been delivered out of. And he is saying that you doing those things in order to make yourself right before God or in favor before God, it's the same as you were doing when you were following all these pagan religions. You're no different from what you were doing before, except now you have a Jewish name on it. Let me, let me bring this into contemporary language. It would be like Paul saying to us this morning, you go to church 
and you sing songs and you pray your prayers and you study your book and you go through all of these motions thinking that by doing these things you have favor before God. By doing these things you're making yourselves right before God. And Paul would say to us, you are no different than the Muslims around the world who are worshiping in mosques this week. No difference. They're checking off their boxes to try to make themselves right before God, and you're checking off your boxes to try to make yourself right before God, and there's no difference. You say, well, I pray. Big deal. Muslims pray. Probably more times a day than most of us. You say, well, I, I worship. I go to worship. Big deal. Hindus worship. They worship all day long. You say, well, well I, I study, I read the Bible. Well, so do Jehovah's Witnesses. And they know it better than most of us in this room. You say, well, I go on mission trips. Well, so do Mormons. Scores of them commit years of their life to go on mission trips, not for a week, for a couple of years. What Paul is saying here is that as long as your Christianity consists of routine and ritual that you follow week in and week out, then you are no different than all the other pagan religions in the world, and just like their religions condemn them, your religion condemns you. This is strong picture. The reality is, as long as us following the rules that we've set up and prescribed in Christianity, as long as we think that by doing these things we're making ourselves right before God and saving our skin for eternity, then we are condemned just like every other religion in the world. And Paul is saying, we are not slaves to religion anymore. We're not slaves to religion. We are sons in a relationship with God. And this changes everything. You don't, you don't check off the box on Sunday morning and then and pray and study the Bible in the way, okay, I've checked off these boxes. No, this is not Christianity. If that's what Christianity is, then Christianity is no different than every other pagan religion in the world. We're not slaves to religion who are doing things in order to try to make ourselves right before God. We are sons who have been made right with God and who now walk in a relationship with Him. This is a radically different view of religion. It changes everything about our lives. You think about it. How deceptive, how subtly deceptive and dangerous this is. What if Satan's strategy in the first century and the 21st century, what if his strategy may involve in your life not necessarily tempting you to do wrong things or horrible things. What if his strategy actually involves tempting you to do right things week in and week out? Going to church and reading your Bible and praying and teaching a small group, maybe even preaching, doing right things, but doing them all with the wrong spirit, thinking that by doing those things, you are earning favor before God. I'm convinced this is one of Satan's most prevalent strategies in our culture here in Birmingham, Alabama. 
to think that by checking these boxes and going through these routines and rituals that we do, we are no different than Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or anybody else around the world. And Paul says, you know God, verse 9. Then I love this. He pauses. He says, or rather, are known by God. That is a great phrase. You are known by God. You know, there's, there's a lot of people I think it would be kind of cool if they knew who I was. I think, I think it would be cool if the president like, knew me. Wouldn't that be cool if the president knew you? Oh, yeah, David, I know him. There's, there's other people, heroes of mine, even in, even in faith, even in Christianity, there's Guys, I think it'd be cool if they, if they knew who I was. I'm guessing there's probably people in your life you'd think it'd be kind of cool if, if they knew who I was. I remember first day I saw Heather in a green dress. I was thinking, I wouldn't mind if she knew who I was. <laughs> I've been known by somebody, recognized by somebody. Ladies and gentlemen, you are known by God. And the word here is not just intellectual acknowledgement. It's not like present. Well, yeah, I heard of David Platt. Not that he has, but if he had, knew me in that way. But God doesn't just know, oh, yeah, I know, I know who you are. I know, yeah, I, I, I know a little bit about it. He knows you intimately. That's the language here. He knows you intimately. Sons in a relationship with God. Does it get any more beautiful than this? I, I think about over the last week and a half, Heather and I have celebrated our ninth anniversary, and I'm so thankful for my wife. And I am so thankful for the relationship and the intimacy that I share with her and the joy that I share in a relationship with her. And let me assure you, my relationship with her does not consist of check off boxes. Now sure, she'll make me a to-do list every once in a while that needs to be checked off. Okay, that's understood. But when I, when I come home, I don't think, okay, kiss her, check, okay. Offer to help with the kids, check. Okay. Offer to serve in this way, check. Have I done everything I'm supposed to do? Okay, it's anniversary time, I've got to do something. Uh, check, check, what can I do? No. No, and, and similarly, I don't come home and I, I don't think, well, we were married nine years ago, so that's pretty much sealed, so I don't really have to worry about working in a relationship with her now, so I just do whatever I want when I come home. Absolutely not. No, I, I come home and I, and I give her a kiss and I offer to help with the kids, serve her because I love her and I want to bless her and want to help her and want to serve her. And I don't say, well, we just did this nine years ago, so I don't need to do anything else. It's work. Marriage is work. And get an amen to that. Don't amen too loudly, husbands. <laughs> amen. No, no, don't do that. But, but it is work. It is work. But isn't this the picture in a much, much, much greater way of a relationship with God? The last thing we would ever want to do is say, well, I prayed this prayer a while ago, so I'm okay. I don't even have to worry about working in a relationship with God. Absolutely not. That's blasphemy. 
Similarly, we would never say, well, I got to figure out things to check off in order to please God, in order to make myself right before God and be in good standing with God. No, absolutely not. That's blasphemy too. Leave them both behind and walk in a loving relationship with God. An intimacy with God, with a God you know and who knows you. We are no longer slaves to religion, held captive to religious routine and rituals that would try to dominate the religious landscape, especially in the southern United States. No, we are sons in a relationship with God who walk with him and enjoy him and glorify him and experience him on a daily basis. This is Christianity, Paul says. Don't go back. You're free. Don't go back to slaves to religion. You're sons in a relationship with God. And that affects where we're going. It affects where we're going. He brings in at the end of this illustration here in Galatians 4, 21 through 31 with Hagar and Sarah. He says in verse 25, now Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children to the earthly ways, religion, and this. And then he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Where are we going? Who, where, where have we come from? We're not obedient to the law. We're awakened by the Spirit. As a result, we're not slaves to religion. We're sons in relationship with God. Where are we going? We're not living for earthly pleasure. We're not living for the city on earth. We're not living for stuff here. We're living for a heavenly home. Not living for earthly pleasure, living for a heavenly home. We're free people. This is where we connect this text with what we studied all fall with talking about laying up treasures not on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Why, why we let go and leave behind and get rid of stuff here because we want treasure in heaven. We're living for treasure in heaven, not comforts here, but Eternal satisfaction in heaven is what we're living for because we're free. Free people. People who are free from bondage to this world. Free people are radical people. Free people don't live like the rest of the world lives. Free people don't indulge in what everybody else in the world indulges in. We're free. Free to live for a father who's preparing us an eternal home Free to stop caring about having all the stuff here because we have a home in heaven and we're living for that which is eternal, not which is temporary. That's the picture here. And so Paul is saying all throughout this picture in Galatians and what I want us to pray as a faith family, we know, I hope we know, I hope we know that we are saved by grace. That we have been saved by grace. When I'm I pray, and I want us to pray together that God would help us, show us what it means not just to be saved by grace in the past, but to walk in grace in the present and to enjoy grace and a life of radical freedom and radical grace. This is the picture. God, show us how to walk in your grace. Second prayer. God, show us how to walk in your grace. And second, God, help us to trust in your word. Help us to trust in your word. Know what we've done. So we've looked at verses 8 through 11 and verses 21 through 31. Kind of as a book ends. Let's dive in in the middle then. Kind of the meat between the sandwiches, so to speak. Verses 12 through 20. Particularly verses 12 through 16. I plead with you, brothers. Become like me, for I became like you. Now what Paul's saying there, just a little background when Paul came to these Gentiles and shared the gospel with him, did Paul come touting all of his Jewish customs and rules and rituals? No. 
That's what he says later points in the New Testament. He said, I became like you in order to lead you to Christ. I didn't bring all these encumbrances in that would keep you from coming to Christ. I became like you. I left those things behind for your sake. Paul's saying, now you're going back to those things that I left behind deliberately. And you're thinking those things are going to get you to God. No. Paul says, I, I, I brought the gospel to you. This is contextualization. This is saying, how can we take the gospel, not in any way compromise the gospel, but remove encumbrances, cultural encumbrances, that would keep the pure gospel from being proclaimed, being shown, and being received. So Paul says, I became like you. Then he says, you have done me no wrong, verse 13. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Scholars debate exactly what Paul's illness was that he was referring to here. Some think it was malaria. Some think it was some sort of problem with his eyes, his eyesight, based on the, uh, the phrase that's used later on in verse 15 about tearing out your eyes and giving them to me. Don't know if that's hyperbolic language or if that's literally there was something wrong with his eyes. But we do know whatever Paul had was in some sense repulsive. He said, my illness was a trial to you. You did not treat me with contempt or scorn. This wasn't a common cold. There's something in Paul, going on in Paul's life, his body, that was a trial to them, a burden in a sense to them. But they welcomed him like an angel of God, as if he were Christ Jesus himself, with such joy. But then something happened. Something happened, and now they were rejecting Paul. Now they were turning their backs on Paul. Now they were looking, you look in verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? They were looking at Paul as an enemy. What had happened here? Paul says, we were, we were together. Now you're looking at me as like, like I'm your enemy. And you're turning, and he's perplexed. He's confused. Think, Corey's heartbroken. So why, where's this prayer? Okay, God, help us to trust in your word. Where does that come from? Well, here's where I want, I want to show this to you. What I mean by that, twofold. First, God, help us to trust your word. Help us to live it when it's not easy. Help us to live it when it's not easy. What Paul is asking the Galatians to do is not an easy thing. To leave behind these Jewish rules and customs that teachers in the church apparently are saying you need to do in order to be saved. This would cause them to be ostracized by those teachers. This would cause them to break the mold, so to speak, to step out. It was what Paul had experienced. You think about Paul and the difficulties he'd gone through. First, and even converting to Christianity from Judaism, here he was amidst the Jewish ruling establishment, and he converts to Christianity, and all of a sudden he's ostracized by all these Jews who are saying, well, he's become a part of a cult, lost all his friends at that point, so to speak. Now he's a part of the church, and he starts reaching out to Gentiles with the gospel, and the Jewish Christians in the church start ostracizing and then saying, what are you doing? Why are you reaching out to them? So now he's stepped out of it again. It's not easy for Paul to have left behind those Jewish rules and customs and then to have been willing to, to not participate in those in order to lead Gentiles to Christ. The further Paul stepped out in order to make the gospel known, the more it cost him, the more he was persecuted. In fact, it's what he's talking about there in verse 29 when he talks about how Ishmael persecuted Isaac. It's the same picture. What's really interesting, though, don't miss this. What's really interesting is who is doing the persecuting. You look in the history of God's people, even the Old Testament, the prophets, were they persecuted? Yes. Who persecuted them? Was it the pagan Gentile nations? 
No, it was the Jewish people. It was the people of God who were persecuting the prophets. Jesus, persecuted by whom? Pharisees, the religious establishment leaders of that day who instigated his death at the hands of the Romans. Paul, persecuted, kicked out of synagogues, persecuted by the very Judaizers who he is confronting here in Galatians. All throughout the history of God's people, it's not been easy to follow God by grace through faith in Christ. Not only because of persecution or obstacles in the pagan world, but maybe even more so because of obstacles and persecution that comes from the religious world. And Paul's talking to folks who, if they believe what he says and put into practice what he is saying, will face opposition from the religious world around them. And here's a picture I want us to see. I cannot help but to think for us as a faith family and for any follower of Christ in this room, if you or I or we together begin to take this word at face value, begin to believe it, and begin to obey it with radical abandonment, our greatest challenges may not come from outside but from inside. And so the question is, are we going to live it even when it's not easy? Are we going to live out this book even when people call you or me a fanatic? Even when we are ostracized by a religious community, by people who once thought were friends now looking at us as an enemy? Not trying to start some uprising here, but the picture is, if we take this word and by grace through faith in Christ begin to obey it not just the parts that we like or the parts that are most appropriate for our culture but really obey this word it will cost us everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what persecuted now that you go seeking after it you seek after Christ and you obey Christ and it will come and it will come from the religious world around you Will we live this even when it's not easy? God, help us to live it when it's not easy, and God, help us to hear it when it's not popular. Verse 16, Paul says, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul says, I, I've said some hard things. I'm a Bring to light some hard truths, but I'm not doing this because I hate you. I'm doing this because I love you, Paul says. Now, those Judaizers, seems like they love you. They're sharing these truths with you, saying do these things, and it seems better to you to do those things. The reality is they do not love you. By following their lead and following their rules, you will go on a road that leads to an eternal hell. You don't want to go there. They don't love you. And Paul says, I love you, and that's why I'm telling you the truth. I'm not your enemy. As I was studying this text this week, I was reminded. I was reminded as a preacher and as a teacher of the Word, and I thought about teachers of the Word represented all across this room. We need to be reminded of this. People will love 
preachers and teachers as long as those preachers and teachers tell the people what they want to hear. You will be loved. You will be given accolades. You will draw the crowds. Give them what they want to hear. Make sure to say whatever keeps yourself in their good opinions. And that's where every teacher and preacher of the Word, including myself, has to come face to face with the question, do we want to be popular or do we want to be faithful? And that is an extremely important question in the church today. It's an important question in this room for everyone who handles this Word. Certainly an important question for me as a pastor. I cannot overemphasize this, emphasize it enough. I want to be faithful to this word. I want to be faithful to this word more than I want to please your opinion of me. And I want you to call me out at any point where I am not faithful to this word. As the church, you have the responsibility to do that. But as long as what we're talking about, even when it's tough truths, even tough truths like we've looked at over this last year, even if there begins to rise, he's an enemy. I want us to pray that God would help us to hear it even when it's not popular, to receive it, even when it exposes blind spots and weaknesses in our lives or in the church or in my life, even when it brings out things that I don't want to hear or you don't want to hear, let's hear it and let's receive it even when it's not popular. God, give me and other teachers around this room grace to preach it even when it's not popular, teach it even when it's not popular, and God, give us grace as a people not to resist it but to welcome it and receive it even when it, even when it does hurt, even when it is confrontational, even when it confronts weak spots or blind spots in our lives. God, help us to receive it by your grace. Help us to receive it and not to resist it. This is the picture. Why I want us to pray, God, help us to trust in your word. Help us to live it when it's not easy and help us to hear it when it's not popular. God, show us how to walk in your grace and God, help us to trust in your word. Third prayer. God, give us great zeal for your purpose. God, give us Great zeal for your purpose. Here's where we come to this last paragraph, so to speak, verses 17 through 20. Those people are zealous to win you over. Talking about the Judaizers. But for no good, what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, verse 18 says, provided the purpose is good. Did you catch that? Zeal is good when it's accompanied by a purpose that's good. This is why Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite books because Edwards, in the middle of Great Awakening Revival, talks about zeal and affection for Christ. And there were people over here that were engrossed in all kinds of emotionalism. They had left truth behind. There were people over here that cling to truth but had no emotion, no affection. Edwards said, Spirit and truth, emotion and truth, 
Desire and truth, they go together. Affection and truth, they go together. You can't have one without the other. So have zeal. Don't sit back cold, unmoved, unfeeling. There should be zeal and passion and fire, not that it's expressed in the same way in every one of our lives, but if we are followers of Christ, there should be great affection for Christ in us. Great affection, great feeling, emotion, desire for Christ. But it's zeal with a good purpose. So what's the purpose? What do we need to be zealous for? And listen to what Paul says, verse 19. Right, my favorite verse in this passage that we're studying. My dear children, you hear this affection? My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. Paul says, what's an image I can use? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm like a mother wanting to give birth to a child in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the purpose. Christ to be formed in you. God, give us great zeal for your purpose. Give us a passion to be conformed into the image of Christ. Give us a passion to be conformed into the image of Christ. Key word, formed in, morpho-o, to be shaped from the inside out, to be molded from the inside out. Christ developed in you from the inside out. It's the same picture in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. That the life of Jesus will be manifested in your bodies. That Christ would be formed in you. This is the kind of freedom Paul is talking about. Freedom comes when Christ captivates your heart and begins to affect the way you think and the way you feel and the way you act and the way you move the way you relate to people around you. This is freedom, Christ being formed in you. And Paul says, this is, this is the purpose, to be conformed into the image of Christ. And it goes exactly what our last prayer was, help us to trust in your word, because this is the work the word does. This is why we study the word like we do week in and week out, because this word that we are studying alone has the power from the Spirit of God to conform our hearts and our minds into the image of Christ. That's why we study this book. That's why you study it like we do week in and week out because we know that when this book, by the power of the Spirit, comes alive in our hearts and our minds, he will make us into the image of Christ. And there's no other book that does that. That's why we don't stand up, give opinions, give thoughts, Dave's tips on how to have a better 2009. No good for you. Word good for conforming you into the image of Christ in 2009. So we're gonna stick with that. And this is where this is where, as I was studying this, this week, I was so blessed. I was so blessed just to think about you and this faith family and the people that are sitting in front of me now. You are so encouraging to me. Words cannot describe the joy, and, and joy just is not an adequate word. J the joy that I experience as Christ is being formed in you and us. When I, when I hear you tell me, one couple about, one couple told me about this last year, their workplace, having the opportunity to see 
16 of their co-workers come to faith in Christ. Christ being formed in you and being multiplied through you. That is joy to hear one couple in this faith family who was walking through divorce and gone through. Papers were sitting in front of the judge waiting to be signed and everything finalized. The couple, by the power of the gospel, says, no, we need to make this thing work. We can make this thing work. And so they send a message to the judge and say, if you could just throw those papers in the garbage, we're going to make this thing work. That's that's good. And here you share about how you're experiencing victory over this sin or that struggle. To have the opportunity on Christmas Eve to stand here and just hug a brother who this time last year was addicted to drugs, all sorts of other things. And this last year has come to faith in Christ and baptized, being reconciled to his family. And to say this is a good first Christmas. That's joy. God, give us a passion to be conformed into the image of Christ. This is the heart of Paul, and I, it makes sense. Because there's, there's really not many other greater joys than seeing people conform to the image of Christ. And this is where it gets really good. I want you to think about it with me. What, what happens when the heart that we see in Paul, oh, I want that heart to be in me. And I need to be conformed to the image of Christ for that heart to be in me. I want, but what happens when that heart is not just in a pastor or is in a group of elders? What happens when this heart is in a people? And we have a passion to be conformed in the image of Christ, but we also have a passion to see others transformed for the glory of Christ. What happens when we begin to look at each other in a faith family and we begin to think, I live for you. I live for you. I want you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Just like, just like a, a mother wanting to give birth to a child and the pains, the desires, they'll go through whatever. I want you to be transformed in, into the image of Christ for the glory of Christ. I want to teach you the word. I want to, what happens when every small group leader, every member of this church is looking at each other and we're saying, I want to model Christ for you. I want to encourage you. I want to build you up. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to edify you. I want to do everything I can in your life to see Christ transforming power at work in your life. I want to see you growing in the image of Christ. And I need you to long for me to be growing in the image of Christ. What happens? This is New Testament community. This is what the church is about. And we would long for each other like that. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would give us a zeal for that. Let's pray that we would not be anonymous worshipers in a big room on Sunday morning. Let's pray that in small groups and when we are sitting next to each other in a gathering like this, we would look at each other and we would, we would think, I want to live so that that person is transformed, not into my image, not in the image that I think is best for them, transformed into the image of Christ for the glory of Christ. That's what the church is intended to be. So 
God, show us how to walk in your grace. God, help us to trust in your word. And God, give us zeal. Give us passion for this purpose. His grace is good. His grace is really good. What I would like for us to do is we close out this chapter in Galatians and really this, this chapter at the end of a year. I want us to celebrate grace together. And so I'm going to invite these guys to, to join me up here. And we're going to have an opportunity as a faith family, as a people, to simply celebrate grace and to sing in confession to God, your grace is enough for us. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to be slaves to religion. We are your people. We are sons, daughters. We're children in a relationship with you. We believe your promise and we trust in you. We want to walk with you. And you, you may be here this morning. You may, may not be a Christian. May not be a part of the church, so to speak. If you have never come to faith in Christ, I want you to know this promise, this grace that we've been talking about this morning is for you. It's for you to receive, to trust, not for you to get a list of things to do, to say, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then you can be a Christian. Absolutely not. It's for you and your heart this morning to say, I, I trust in, in Him. Maybe, maybe even for people in this room who have been slaves to religion for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And maybe the Spirit of God in your heart this morning has said to you or is saying to you, you're no different than the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and everyone else who's following a checkoff list to try to make themselves right before God. And this morning, He's calling you to trust in Him to make you right before him, not based on anything you have done, but based on the righteousness of Christ in heaven, his sacrifice on the cross for your sins. Whether you're a child or a man or woman, say this morning, I, I'm going to trust in him for the first time. I'm going to trust in his grace. And you can do that as we pray, as we sing. If you have questions about that, when we stand and sing, there's folks who will be in the access corner over here in the back corner of the room that would love to pray with you. Even if you're, you're wrestling, oh, am I a slave to religion or if I really trusted in Christ? I would urge you not to, not to put off talking with somebody about that any longer, but to say, I want to make sure I'm right before God based on the righteousness of Christ. Father, we, we praise you for your grace. We've seen the power of your grace in so many ways in this church. And so we pray this morning that you would show us how to walk in your grace. You would help us to be a people who trust in your word, who live it when it's not easy, hear it when it's not popular. We want to be faithful more than we want to be popular. And God, we pray that you would give us zeal for your purpose, zeal to be conformed in the image of Christ to see others transformed for the glory of Christ. God, we, we say to you this morning in our confession together as a church, your grace is enough for us. We are your people. We trust in your promise, and your grace is more than enough for us. All glory be to your name. It's in your name we pray. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 